So how many of you over the next two weeks will be spending time with a family that's not sitting next to you right now? Okay, most of you in the room. Okay, um, so we're all going to be doing something in, in common. How many of you have some unique, colorful, even strange family members? Let me see your hands. How many of you have those? Okay, most of the room. How many of you are those unique, strange, colorful family men? You got some honesty. That's good in church. You want to be honest. Um, the truth is, we all have them, and for some of us, it's us, you know, and, and we're glad they live in another state or far away, and we get together with them occasionally, and we try to make the best of it. Uh, they come for Thanksgiving, Christmas, or we spend New Year's with them, and fortunately, sometimes we rotate holiday seasons that we spend with them. Um, when I think of my extended family, I think of a great aunt and uncle I had, and uh, I knew them as Aunt Kay and Uncle Bill. That's my dad's, my grandfather's sister and her husband. They had a large, large property. I remember they always had this big garden. Um, but we would only go to their house once a year. It was usually on New Year's Day. And they had one of those houses um, that could have been on the criminal mind scene. It was that kind of a house, you know. Lots of mirrors. Who has wall, roof floor size wall-to-ceiling mirrors all over your house? Who does that? I don't know, but they did. The house was always dimly lit. You could never find your way around it. There's always piles of stuff. I remember as a little kid, I would go into the bathroom of this house, and like the bathroom was like 30 feet long. It was creepy. You know, the tub's <laughs> at the one end, you're in the bathroom at the other. It was real. And then down in the basement, they had a chained up German shepherd that I think was partially rabid. You know, we weren't allowed to go down there near the thing. And my uncle would always hold, don't stay away from, you know, Brutus or whatever his name was. You know, it was very creepy, very weird. Um, but, uh, you know, and if we were to spend some time sitting talking, which we won't do this morning because the service is being recorded, um, you could all tell me about your crazy families, you know, and because the truth is we all have them. We all have them. And that's the, the series that we're in is My Crazy Messed Up Family. And we discovered over these past few weeks that Jesus as well has some unique and colorful individual in his family. And it may come as a shocker to you if you've never looked at the family and the history and the genealogy of Jesus that some of it is somewhat graphic, almost, we would say, R-rated. And we've been walking through the stories of Jesus' extended family. And each week we've asked ourselves the question, why did he include these people in his story? Why did he include these people in his story? And we discovered the same question, the same answer every single week. Because there's stories about people like you and like me. People with flaws, people with secrets, people with labels. People with stories that they won't, won't be told. You see, Matthew was about to present the story of Jesus to a Jewish culture who had learned, uh, who had lived with an idea about faith. And this idea about faith was that you had to have your life figured out, all your ducks in a row. You had to make sure everything was in order for you to come to God and to be acceptable to Him. And Matthew was going to present a new and a different approach to God. And this new approach, different approach to God was it was not about what I've done, not about how good I've been, not about how I've covered up all my wrongdoing, but it was based on what God has done for me, what God did for me. And in order to do this, he traced the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus, all the way back through David, all the way back to Abraham to point out some very unusual people who needed to experience God's mercy and his grace and forgiveness in an amazing way. He not only points them out, giving us their names, but we have a record in other parts of the Bible of the stories and the disasters that their lives have become. 
And he points us to those stories for the exact same reason that Jesus came to the earth. Jesus doesn't come, didn't come to the earth for perfect people. He didn't come to the earth for people who have life figured out. He came to the earth for people who had problems, who had struggles, who made mistakes. But they were looking for hope. They were looking for answers. They were looking for a savior. <coughs> and this morning we're going to look at the story of an individual who made a litany of bad decisions. His bad decisions, his bad judgment, cost him something. He told a lie that resulted in 82 of his 85 priests being murdered. He betrayed one of his most loyal friends, actually ending up having him die and covering it up. He had an affair that resulted in a child being born. His family was so dysfunctional that kids eventually went to war, his kids against one another. He refused to, to confront one of his sons who actually raped one of his daughters. Horrific story. Not the kind of guy you were like, you want this guy at family dinner? Not really. Not really. But this guy gets included in the story. You see, in Matthew, the genealogy begins by saying this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. He gets top billing in Jesus' genealogy. David. Closest to Jesus. David. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, that Jeremy talked about a couple weeks ago. A woman with secrets that God did something miraculous and redemptive through her story. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Minadab. Minadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boab, whose mother was Rahab, who we looked at last week. Rahab had a label, a label that was included in her life, even after God miraculously transformed her when she recognized the God of the heavens. I believe because God did never want her to forget her story and that God can do something with your story, no matter how painful and difficult it is. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, and it should say, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, but another interruption whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Could have said lots of things about David. He was a poet. He was a warrior. He was a shepherd boy. He was a general. He was a king. But why would Matthew draw attention to the greatest failure in David's life? Remember, that's the point of the gospel that he is about to write about. He reminds the Jewish people and he reminds us that this man, who was the greatest, one of the greatest kings in all the land of Israel, was also a failure as a leader, a friend father and a husband. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. That's where we're going to be this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's page 245 in the Bibles in your seat. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's page 245. The Bible's there. You can follow along in your phone or tablet as well. The story we're going to look at takes place a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. You see, the Bible is not just one book. We tend to think of the Bible as one book, but it's a collection of ancient manuscripts written over a period of 1,400 years that tell us one story. One story. And this winter, we're going to look at that whole story and try to wrap our minds around understanding. <coughs> and so this part of the story takes place a 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. There was a prophet by the name of Samuel. The prophet was a spokesperson for God. He came to this little village, this little village called Bethlehem. 
of all places, to find a man who was going to be king. You see, the people of Israel had said they wanted a king, and so God had given them a king, and his first king was King Saul. And he was a disaster. He was a train wreck because Saul was um, so emotionally unaware and uh, so insecure, he made lots and lots of bad decisions. And so God said to Samuel, time to pick who the new king is going to be, but Saul was still going to be reigning. And so he goes to this little town, the town of Bethlehem, and he goes to this one family, and he says to this father, a man by the name of Jesse, who has eight sons, he said, one of your sons is going to be king. And so Jesse proceeded to parade across the stage his sons, his accomplished sons, his well-built sons, um, his disciplined son, son after son would come up, and Samuel would be like, eh. and God wouldn't say anything, but no, not him. Next one to come up. God didn't say anything. Nope, not him. And so this went on through his seven sons. And Jesse was like, we got to have more. Who else? Who else? And um, Samuel said that to Jesse. And Jesse said, well, I got one little guy. He's out in the shed. He's out in the field with the sheep. Bring him in. So he brings in the little guy, the scrawny guy, the 10, 11, 12-year-old guy that's out there with the sheep, keeping the wild animals away from the sheep. Parades him in front of Samuel, and all of a sudden, the Spirit of God says to Samuel, He's the one. And I was like, Are you kidding me? <laughs> him? Him? Yeah. Him. So Samuel takes out his anointing oil, proceeds to tell David to kneel, pours that oil on his head, and says, You will one day be the king of Israel. And he walks off. Talk about a light bulb. They're just stunned. They can't believe it. Him, the king, this little shepherd boy, seems crazy, seems bizarre. And yet after a series of dramatic events, David ends up living in the palace of the king, in the palace of the king, and eventually becomes king. And he has a beautiful place to live. Um, <laughs> But the place where they would worship God, their church, if you will, um, was still the tabernacle, the portable place that they would set up and take down every single day when they traveled all throughout the wilderness. They were still worshiping God in the tabernacle. I mean, it's, it's like you moving into a new home and having family heirlooms stored in a wooden box out in the tent in the yard. That's what it would be like. You know? And David says, it's time that we have a house for God. And so he said, God, we need a, a house for you. And, and the, the new prophet on the scene, Nathan, said, you're right. And God said, I've never needed a house. I can take care of things. But if you want to build me a house, that would be great. And so the prophet, Nathan, says to David these words from God. Now tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. <coughs> I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on the earth. This is what God is telling David. He said, your name will be great. How many of you know something about this guy named David? Anybody in the room? Everybody the, who knows something about this guy named David? Most of us do, right? Most people have heard of King David. In the Bible, most people know something about him, if nothing more than he killed a giant. But they know something about him. 
Nathan goes on. He says, I will provide a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be destroyed, disturbed. Does Israel, or the people of Israel, have a home of their own? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore. That hasn't happened yet. That's still happening, as they did from the beginning. And have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. He says, when your days are over, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Remember, he's talking about David. He's saying, you will have children, and they will succeed you on the throne. Did that happen? Yes, it did. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is a promise that God makes, that the kingdom of David will reign and will continue. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him. He goes on to say in verse 15, but my love will never be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I have removed from before you. What God did is he made a promise to David. And he made what's called an unconditional promise. This is not a conditional promise. A conditional promise is you do this part and I will do this part. That's not what kind of promise this was. This is an unconditional. It's all on God. The weight is on God. God says, I'm going to do this regardless of what you do. If you make bad choices, there's going to be consequences. But I will keep my word. I will keep my promise. And this happens in 2 Samuel 7. And then just four chapters later, David puts this promise to the test. It was the springtime, and that's the time when kings would send their armies out to do battle. That's when they would fight, and then that was the time in which they would attempt to expand their kingdom. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites. Siege Rabbah, but David in <coughs> Jerusalem. Usually the king would go out because the king was the general. The king was the commander-in-chief, if you will. But he didn't go out at this time. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. As I thought about this story, and I thought about what's unfolding here, uh, in that day... They didn't have binoculars. Um, in that day, they didn't have ways to see far away. It's kind of a puzzling thing to me. I would have to imagine the king is up on the rooftop from time to time. There's a place in the Middle East, in the middle of the heat of the day, when it would cool down at night, guess where you would go? You would go upstairs in the night air. So this is a place that we frequented often. And I, and I kind of wonder if this was not what David experienced here. This was not just a once and done thing. The first time he ever had been up there, seen women off in a distance, seen things happening off in a distance on the rooftops. But for some reason in this setting, he heard, knew about this woman, saw something. He sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was one of the men who led David's army. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. David took advantage of his power. He misused his power. We hear a lot today about abuse of authority, abuse of power. 
In that culture and in that day, you did not say no to the king. If you did, it could cost you your life. That was the way of the land. The story of Esther illustrates that story. That you, the women did not have a voice. They did not have a say. And men took advantage of that, often in very horrific ways. And so she comes to the king. She sleeps with him. She goes back home. And then sometime shortly after that, she confesses to him. She said, I'm pregnant. So David realizes that he has a problem. He has a problem. He's had an affair, and now he will have a child as a result of that affair. So David sends out words to Joab, who's his commander, and he says, I want you to send Uriah, her husband, home so that he can have a, give him a few days' leave. And if he has a few days' leave to meet home with his husband, they're going to probably enjoy themselves with one another. They haven't been together for a long time, and then it'll cover up the story. We'll hide it all, and no one will ever know. So Uriah comes home, and uh, Uriah doesn't go in to sleep with his wife. Uriah sleeps <coughs> outside of his house. You're like, why would Uriah do that? He said, it's not right for me to go in and to be with my wife and to enjoy all the things that um, none of my men are able to enjoy. And I'm their leader, and so I'm with them, and I'm going to stay out here and experience what they're experiencing. <coughs> so David's like, okay, go to plan B. Now what's plan B? David says, invite Uriah over for dinner, says, you're one, of my, you're one of my fighting men, you've done a great job out there, why don't you enjoy a nice meal with me here? He makes sure that the beverages keep flowing. Uriah gets a bit intoxicated, David's like, all right, now we'll send him home. Now maybe he'll go in and sleep with his wife. And Uriah goes home, and guess what Uriah does? He sleeps on the porch once again. David's plan is foiled. And so David then proceeds to write a letter to Joab, his commander, and he sends it with Uriah. You couldn't make this up. This is like a story made from Hollywood. Because David writes in this letter, he says, I want you to put Uriah, I want you guys to keep attacking. And I want Uriah at the point, at the tip of the spear, I want him out in front. And when the fighting gets heavy and intense, I want you to tell everyone to fall back except for Uriah. Imagine Joab having to enforce the king's word. Uriah is carrying his own death sentence to give to his commander. Plan C, because plan A and B have not worked at this point in time. And so David sends the letter with Uriah out to Joab. Joab puts Uriah at the fiercest part of the battle, pulls everyone back, leaves Uriah out there exposed. Uriah is killed. He is brought back to the city um, after the battle takes place. He's honored as a man who's a warrior, who's a hero. His wife grieves his loss after the loss of grief. David invites Bathsheba into his home as part of his harem and his wives, and then she conceives a child. And one would assume 
Crisis averted. <coughs> Problem solved. Cover-up accomplished. Who else knew about this other than David and Joab and a few of his trusted men? No one. No one. But the record, the record of this in the end of 2 Samuel says this. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now think about this with me for a moment. Just a few chapters earlier, God had made this promise to David, who is a righteous man, who is a godly man, who is a man of honor and a man of integrity. And he said, he said, I am going to have a king that is going to follow you, and your kingdom will reign forever. He just made this promise to King David. And then David goes out and does this horrific thing in which he, he has an affair. He sets up one of his men, commits murder, covers it up, and then tries to make it look like everything is okay. What's God going to do? How's God going to resolve this dilemma? Because at this moment in time, God has a man who he had just made this huge promise to. <coughs> and he had just done something disastrous. Imagine. You're the boss of the company. And you see an up-and-coming star. And you give him a great opportunity. So I want you to lead this department. I want you to lead this project. And you give them everything that they need to accomplish it. And they make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And they cost the company thousands and thousands of dollars. What would you do? What would you do? Imagine parents that you've got a kid who has... Um, been very responsible and, and, and done good in school and taken a lot of initiative and they've gone on with their life and, and they decide they're going to go to college and they go to college and you're pouring this money for them to go to college and help them to move forward and they go to college and they go away and they make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision with the money and the resources that you have sacrificed and you worked hard for what are you going to do? Kind of see the dilemma that God is in right now? Is he going to renege on his promises? Is he going to back away on his promises? Is he going to keep his word? What is he going to do? One of the things we discover in this story is that God always keeps his promises. <clears throat> God always keeps his promises. And even when people who are part of that promise, even when people who have been blessed with amazing things, even when people have been entrusted with great opportunity, responsibility, and privilege, blow it, mess up. God keeps his promises. Now, how do you know that, John? Because several hundred years later, nearly a thousand years later, a woman by the name of Mary and a guy by the name of Joseph, who both came from the family of David, had a child in the most miraculous way, and his name was Jesus. 
I mean, think about it for a moment with me if you're Matthew, the tax collector. Think about it for a moment with me. Because Matthew was a guy, he was a Jew, he was raised as a Jew, but he made a mess of his life. And he did not feel acceptable to God. He did not believe anybody would want him, anybody would value him, anybody would receive him. And the only one who did was Jesus. Why? Because Jesus accepts us not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what God has done for us. And this is a story about a king that everyone knows, a story about a king who before should have been completely acceptable to God because he did everything God wanted. But after this situation, <coughs> he made mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. And the truth is, when you and I, when we mess up badly, when we blow it, when we don't keep our word, <coughs> when we make a bad choice, I don't know about you, but I kind of hold my breath wondering if I would still be accept accepted even by people <coughs> that love me. I'm not sure why that is. Maybe that's human nature. Maybe it is. But God made a promise to me and he made a promise to you as well. If you're a follower of his, God has said to you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And there are times in life when you wonder if that's going to be true. There are times in life when you wonder if God is going to continue to be good. Someone said yesterday at Jim's service, they said one of the truths that Jim came to live by and that I've come to believe is that God is good all the time. The things that are happening to me may not be good. They may be horrible. They may be a nightmare, and some of it may be my own fault, but God is good all the time. God is faithful all the time, and God will always keep his promises. You see, Matthew was about to tell a story, a new story, based on a new covenant, based on a new promise. It was a promise sealed by the blood of Jesus, a promise not based on two parties agreeing, but on one party, an unconditional promise. And when he, Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood on the cross, it made that promise real. And he promises to us that if we give our lives to him, that we have a relationship with the creator of the universe forever. Listen to the words of the angel. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of who? In the town of David. Town of David. A guy who messed up. A guy who could have potentially thrown away everything that God had given to him. A Savior has been born to you. And I hope whenever you hear this phrase, the town of David, which is the city of Bethlehem, where David came from, that you'll think about this guy, David. And you'll think about the opportunities given to him. And you'll think about the promises God made to him. And the promises that God was willing to keep. Because God made those promises. He goes on to promise in verse um, 13. He says, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appear, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest on earth. Peace to, to those on whom his favor rests. See, God promises peace to us. 
When you think of this individual who got included in the story of uh, the story of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus, it said David. Excuse me. It said Solomon, whose mother was Uriah. The child that was born to David and Bathsheba, that child died. God took that child's life as part of the consequence for David's sin. But God gave them another child, and his name was Solomon. And he went on to be the greatest and the wisest king that Israel had ever known. And so God will, while there's consequences for my choices, consequences for my actions, God will always keep his promises. He will always come through. And he will offer peace to us. And so as you think about this part of the story, as you think about this individual, David, I mean, I think if there's one guy other than Abraham that's probably exalted in the scriptures, it's probably King David. But David made some really bad choices. In spite of all of that, God kept his promises to David. You say, did David ever come clean? Did he ever own up to what he did? He did. I skipped past it. I'm going to scroll past back a couple of verses here. In Psalm 51, David was confronted by the prophet Nathan almost a year after the sin had occurred. And David was told a story by the prophet Nathan about a man who had two sheep. And one of the sheep was taken by a man who only had two, by a man who had many, and that sheep was killed. And David was horrified at that story, and Nathan said, you are the one who has done this. And suddenly in that moment, he saw the horrific nature of his sin, and he fell to his knees, and he wrote Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, it said, against you, God, I have sinned, and I have done what is evil in my sight. And so as we talk over these last several weeks about secrets and about labels and about stories, I don't know what that looks like in your life. I don't know what's in your story that you hope no one finds out, that you hope no one discovers, that you hope no one knows. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God's mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and his love and acceptance with you is bigger than anything that's happened in your story. No matter how hard and how painful and how difficult it is. And he invites you today to bring that fully to him. And so our hope and our prayer this morning for you at this Christmas season is that you would be able to do what this sentence says. Is ask yourself, what promise has God made you that you're holding on to today? Is there a promise about God's faithfulness, his goodness, his kindness to you, his compassion, his love, and his mercy? I want to ask you to bow your heads as we close.